don't be afraid to take a risk. Nobody has perfect information. Too often people get frozen and it's really true with lawyers. They always want to wait till you have perfect information to make a decision. And the world doesn't work that way. By not deciding, you've decided. So take a risk, pay attention to what's happening, correct as necessary, but do something. Welcome to the Business Class Podcast, where we dive into conversations with alumni, students, faculty, and staff from the University of Dayton School of Business Administration. You'll hear career advice, conversations about ethical decision-making in business, and listen to stories from life on the UD campus. Here's your host, Dean Trevor Collier. Hello, and welcome to the Business Class Podcast. Today, we are joined by 1975 University of Dayton School of Business graduate, Bob Cohorst. Bob is the founder of Everest Properties, a privately held company that specializes in acquisition, recapitalization, and asset management of real estate. Bob also recently served as the U.S. Ambassador to Croatia from 2018 to 2021. Thanks for joining me today, Mr. Ambassador. Well, like thank, to, you. thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure to, uh, to join you this morning. I'd like to start our journey with some questions about your experiences in Croatia and then work our way back to your time at the University of Dayton. Uh, could you start by in- informing myself and some of, our, some of our listeners a little bit more about what, what an ambassador does? Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, the, all U.S. ambassadors represent the United States of America and they're the personal representative of the president of the United States. Uh, that's, that's a big deal and a big honor to serve in that role. And uh, the ambassador is also the chief of mission, uh, which means that he is in charge of uh, all executive branch employees in the country uh, and responsible for the safety and well-being of all U.S. citizens visiting, uh, in my case, Croatia. Uh, more specifically, the embassy consisted of 225 employees Uh, made up of 55 Americans who were full-time State Department employees, and the balance being Croatian nationals who uh, work for the embassy long-term. And then the ambassador's time is divided up into a variety of um, sections and and areas of responsibility. There's political diplomacy, there's business and economic affairs, uh, there's managing military relationships, uh, there's a big public relations effort, uh, and there's a lot of receptions and um, uh, activities where we, we represent the U.S. In a, in a more social area. The embassy also involves HR and management functions. We have to house 55 American families and we have to do accounting and payroll. We had a me- full-time medical unit uh, to take care of all the medical needs of the U.S. families. We had a Marine security guard detail of eight Marines who guarded the embassy. And then we had um, additional U.S. government agencies such as the DEA, Department of Justice, and the CIA all had uh, significant uh, presence uh, in the embassy. So it's a very busy place and, and a very active job if, if you want it to be. Wow, that's, not, that's a lot. Uh, what, what was, you know, what aspect of those responsibilities <clears throat> do, you, do you miss the most or did you enjoy the most while you were there? But what I, what I really enjoyed was an opportunity to get things done. Uh, what, I, what I find found is that the uh, career uh, State Department employees are very smart, very dedicated to their mission, but the bureaucracy pushes them into a role of making sure that the reports are filed on time and the paperwork is all done and not so much focused on getting results. So what I really felt good about and most, most excited me was the opportunity to 
make things happen. And during my time in Croatia, uh, uh, I was able to accomplish certain things that had been on the, on, on the radar for years. They told me when I went to Croatia, my number one task was to get Croatia to build the liquefied natural gas terminal on the island of Kirk. The U.S. had been advocating for this for 25 years. So when I got there, they showed me that what had been done, and it was very clear to me that the, the government of Croatia and the embassy were looking at this um, in the wrong way. They were trying to make a financial project out of a strategic project. So I was able to actually convince the Croatians to look at the project differently. And in January uh, of 2021, the LNG terminal opened for business after 28 years of U.S. advocacy. So there's something that was real, had been around a long time. Um, another project that was interesting was the visa waiver program. Croatia wanted to be in that program with the U.S. for, again, 25 years since the country was founded in the 90s. Never were able to qualify. And uh, actually, three days ago, uh, Croatia qualified for the visa waiver program. I was able to get it started and COVID slowed it down and took eight months after I left to get it completed. Um, but I, I got a nice email yesterday from the Minister of the Interior and the Minister of Foreign Affairs thanking me for my efforts in helping Croatia achieve uh, that very important goal for the country. So getting things done that had been around for a long time was really excited me. And, and, I, and you know, with a lot of good work from lots of embassy employees and people in Washington, uh, and, and focusing people on getting results, I think we made, we made things happen. I, I bet a lot of your business experience really helped out with, with as you're describing it, getting things done. Um, but I, I want to come back to some of that here, here in a minute. But maybe for those of us that aren't very familiar with, with Croatia, for myself, <clears throat> all, all I know of Croatia is we looked at going there for my honeymoon. And, and man, it, the, the pictures we saw, I think Dubrovnik was the, the town we were looking at. They're just gorgeous right on the coast, a bunch of sort of white, white stone houses. What, what, what about Croatia was most appealing or, or something that you think is, is most interesting to Americans? Well, Croatia is a, a relatively small country, 4 million people, the, the land mass, the size of West Virginia. Uh, and it's really dominated by its coastline. Uh, it has more than a thousand islands along its coastline, beautiful water, beautiful beaches, extraordinarily clean um, beaches and, and sea. And, um, you know, and so is a vacation. It's where people want to go. And, and it's justified. And you've got these beautiful cities along the coast like Dubrovnik. Um, Dubrovnik was actually the first republic to recognize the United States as a country back in 1776. So they have a long history and they remind the Americans that all the time. They were, sure. uh, they, they have a long history with the U S but it's not just Dubrovnik. It's also split in Zadar and, and, and the islands of Korchula and Havar are all just to name a few are all terrific places. So uh, Croatia is a great vacation destination. It's its largest um, employer is, is the vacation industry and, and, and largest contributor to GDP. But also, aside from the coast, it has several national parks, Plitvice and Kirka, which are just spectacular and, and are not far. Nothing is very far from the coast. So it's easy to get around, easy to see lots of the, divergent uh, um, scenes and uh, just a, a really nice place to visit. What was the, the biggest challenge when, when you moved there? Oh, the biggest the, the biggest challenge was um, really getting the, the staff to, uh, to stop focusing on reports and focusing on results. They were just not used to that. Um, when I got there, uh, there was a Monday, there was a daily meeting for an hour to brief about what's going on in the embassy. And I said, there's not enough going on every day that we have an hour meeting with all the department heads. So we'd have eight or 10 people in my office 
talking about what they did yesterday. I said, how about we meet twice a week for a half an hour and you guys talk about the important things that need to be discussed. And if there's something comes up in the interim, then we'll have a special meeting and we'll talk about it. But trying to get, and, and it really worked. They, they, they resisted that at first, but later on said, you know, this is really much better. We're much more efficient. We're getting more things done. And, um, you know, and that, that, that made me feel good that I was bringing this business perspective to people who actually appreciated it once they, once they sort of understood how it worked, but they were just, the State Department bureaucracy is just not used to that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you were, uh, you were very different from the prior ambassadors that, they, that they'd served under. You know, I, I understand you went to law school at, at the University of Michigan and, and later yeah. made partner in a, in a private law firm in California. You know, you're talking about your, your business perspective here in, in Croatia. What led you away from law and, and into business? You know, I always think I, I wanted to practice law for a few years. Uh, I thought it was a terrific experience, a great background, but I always uh, was inclined to be involved in business. I really wanted to be on the decision-making side of the transaction instead of the advisory side. And and so you, you started Everest Properties, or I think there may have been a precursor to that, but maybe tell us what sort of led to Everest Properties and, and how that how that started. I, I practiced law for about seven years and then went to work for a large real estate company, Public Storage, basically doing investment banking and putting together real estate partnerships, syndications, raising money. And then I just decided one day I wanted my own business. So I, I quit and uh, bought a Halloween costume company and a golf club company, ran those for about a year. And while it was they were mildly successful, it really wasn't what I was good at. And I concluded I was good at and was passionate about real estate and financial engineering and structuring. And so I sold those two businesses and, and started Everest Properties. And, um, you know, and, 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 and this, they found a way to acquire real estate in a, in, a, in a different perspective than normal. Instead of buying the real estate, what we bought were the real estate securities that owned the real estate. And we did that through tender offers. And, and basically... There were thousands of limited partnerships that were out there with lots of investors who felt stuck in their investment. And we bought out the little investors. And over time, we bought out about 150,000 limited partners um, and acquired a minority interest in the real estate, but at a big discount to the underlying asset value and um, created a real estate business that um, in, a, in a different way that had um, a high going in prop profit, but illi illiquid for a period of time. And eventually turned that liquid, converted it into some whole ownership of real estate. And, and today our company um, owns apartment buildings and some shopping centers and self-storage. Uh, and we're more of a, an operating business. It's pretty impressive. Um, what, what advice do you have for other entrepreneurs or or? aspiring entrepreneurs and in, in how, how do you get started and, and what are uh, what are the ways to be successful? You know, I, I've thought about that a lot. In fact, given a couple of commencement addresses to universities in Croatia about, about that. And um, so there are four things I think uh, are important for people to focus on to give them a greater chance of success, both as entrepreneurs. And I think, frankly, a lot of this applies to life in general. But the four things are is if you're an entrepreneur, have a good idea. Right. And you don't have to you don't have to have a great idea, but you have to at least have a good idea. Um, you know, Facebook is not a great idea. MySpace existed before before Facebook, but it wasn't executed properly. So 
Facebook acts like they're unique, but they, there are lots of companies like them at the time, but it was a good idea. Um, most importantly is do something you're passionate about. If you're not passionate about something, when, when troubles arise, and they always arise, nothing works perfectly, you won't have the energy to attack it. If you're passionate about it, if you really like what you're doing, then you can attack it with the, the, the energy necessary. Uh, third is to have great partners. Uh, too often people look at business deals and they run the numbers and they look good on paper. It's all about people. So have great partners. And partners include your, your investors, your lender, your employees, your spouse, uh, everything in life. You should be very careful on who you do business with, who you associate with, because uh, it really makes life great if you're surrounded by great partners. And lastly, don't be afraid to take a risk. Nobody has perfect information. Too often people get frozen, and it's really true with lawyers. They always want to wait till you have perfect information to make a decision. And the world doesn't work that way. By not deciding, you've decided. So take a risk. Pay attention to what's happening. Correct as necessary, but do something. How hard was that in, in Croatia to get some of the, you know, lifelong State Department employees to take risks? Oh, they, you know, they, they don't really <laughs> take risks. And they shouldn't, frankly, because their bureaucracy says you get rewarded for doing reports and you don't get rewarded for taking risks. And so the challenge was to balance that because while I wanted them to take risks, and they did, uh, I also recognized that their career path required them to do other things. So you had to let them do the things that the bureaucracy in D.C. insisted on. Uh, so it was it was a bit of a it, it was a bit of a challenge, and you had to recognize that it wasn't going to be perfect, right? I could, uh, you know, for example, we had too many people at the embassy, we, way too many employees. We didn't need that many, but you could not fire anybody. The State Department bureaucracy said everybody has to stay there, and everybody's important, and we don't want to cut our budgets, even though it would have been more efficient to do so. So you just have to accept the fact that things aren't perfect, and and move on. Which of the the risks you took, you know, either moving from practicing law into, you know, starting the buying into the the two companies you you discussed the the golf company and the the Halloween costume company, or or leaving those companies and and starting Everest? Oh, the biggest risk I took was clearly leaving public storage. At the time, I was thirty four years old. I was a number three guy in a Fortune five hundred company where the two senior guys were in their 60s, um, and I quit. I, I, I walked in one day to the, the CEO and said, I just want my own business. And he said, what are you going to do? And I said, I don't know. I'm just going to go find something. But, I, but if I don't do this, I'm always going to think about it. So that was a huge risk. And in fact, it paid off uh, over time, but not directly. For several years, uh, you know, my wife and I had no money. We ran through our savings. Uh, we were weeks away from filing bankruptcy because we couldn't make our mortgage payment. So when you start a business, it's not easy. It takes time and it, and it never goes as fast as you'd like. And it costs more money than you think. So everybody says, this is my worst case scenario. It is never your worst case scenario. And so you just have to accept that risk, which I did. But it was very difficult and particularly hard on my wife. And I, and I understand that I had the, the emotional satisfaction of seeing the business being built in addition to hopefully there'd be some financial rewards. For her outside the business, she was looking at the financial rewards and two small children and how are we going to pay the mortgage and how are we going to raise the kids? And so the fact she stayed with me through all of the difficult times um, 
it means we're probably going to stay together. We've been married now more than 40 years. So I, I think it's probably going to stick. Well, that's impressive. Congratulations on that. You know, I, I love hearing those kinds of stories from entrepreneurs. I think too often we we celebrate the end outcome, the successes, and, and that's all that our students see. Uh, and it's good for them to hear the, the trials and tribulations and struggles because I, almost every successful entrepreneur I've talked to, they've had some of that before they achieved those, those successes. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is much harder to start a business than people see. You, all, you always see the successful guys at the end result. And I even get that today. People say, boy, look at you. you got a very successful real estate business. Wasn't that easy? And the answer was no, it was not easy. It was very risky. Uh, it, you know, it took an emotional toll as you tried to get through this. But, you know, I, I loved every minute of it. And um, the fact that that works out is, is, is great. But it really wasn't about uh, seeing how much money I could make. It was, for me, it was really about I wanted to control my life and my own destiny. And, um, and, I, and I wanted to spend time with my kids growing up. I, 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 and as they went through school, I went to all their sporting events. I frankly I went to every football practice, every baseball practice. Um, I just wanted to run my life. When you work for a big company, they pay you a lot of money. You go do what they say. They tell you to get on a plane to go to New York. You go to New York. That's the deal. If you're an entrepreneur, you can decide to go to New York or not. You make, might make less money, but you get to decide that. And that was really the reason I started my business. That's awesome. Let's 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 go back in time to to your time at, at the University of Dayton. Uh, you know, you graduated in, in 1975. I, I imagine the campus looked a, a lot different than it does today. Uh, you know, when, when was the last time you've been back to UD and, and what was the, the thing that stuck out to you as the most different from the way it looked when you were here as a student? Uh, the campus does look very different, uh, especially the, the entrance of uh, the, the front door. Uh, there used to be a, a, a Frisch's big boy right, in the, right at the front door of the campus, and that's gone and much nicer entrance. Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed sports at UD. The rec, uh, the rec center, which was the field, what is now the field house, was our rec center. Uh, and so I see the new rec center, and I'm just stunned at how nice that is, how much time I would have spent there if it had been around during my time. Um, the other thing that's really different is the student housing area. In 1971 to 75, they were owned by private people who let the students to tear the houses up and just re-rented to the next students without many repairs. So uh, it was a terrific experience living in the ghetto, but the, the housing, and in hindsight, the housing wasn't particularly uh, up to standard. Yeah. So, you know, you, you walk through the neighborhood and University owns the vast majority, but there's there's still some landlord landlord owned houses here and there, and you you can you know there's a UD stamp on the front of the house, so you, you know it, with certainty which ones we own, but you, you really don't even need the stamp. You can just tell by uh, you know how well how well taken care of the property is from the outside. You can tell which ones UD owns and which ones UD does not own. And I was last there about five years ago, uh, and I've been I've been on campus a number of times since I've graduated, but. Five years ago was kind of the most the most recent time, and actually, I mean, it was three years ago. Right, it was right before COVID. I, I visited the campus along with some friends. I was in DC for a meeting uh, with the State Department, and then said, "Let's just make a long weekend of it." And uh, and I flew to Dayton and had had my college roommates uh, join me, and we all uh, toured campus and got to meet the basketball coach and watch UD and their as they were getting ready for their final run to win the NCAA championship. I, I was, was, I, was just, <laughs> I was just in a meeting with 
with the UD alumni and everybody was introducing themselves and he introduced them himself as graduate of the 2020 national championship basketball team, the university of Dayton. <laughs> I, I certainly feel for him. It's exactly, I couldn't believe it that Dayton finally gets a good shot at winning the national championship and COVID shuts it down. It was inter- I, this spring I was in the arena for the first time since COVID shut us down. And, and I was given a talk to a group of admitted students uh, to the university, but it was, it was very eerie, you know, stepping foot on the, on the basketball court. The last time I was there was the last home game of that 2020 season when, um, you know, Obi Toppin, we, ESPN was here, national television, uh, college game day before the game and, and the, the, the hype and, and the excitement on campus was at, at levels. I, you know, I've been here 15 years. We are at levels I've never seen. Uh, and, and so to have it end the way it did after that was, was so disappointing. And I know for many of our alumni, that was a big challenge as well. You know, when you look, when I go back and look at what was one of my favorite memories at UD, it was the night uh, Dayton lost to UCLA in the regional finals in double overtime. Uh, and I, I can still remember that night, all of us sitting around television, watching the game as it goes into double overtime and bench date lost. Uh, but despite that fact afterwards, there were huge parties, n- n- nothing malicious or dangerous, but just crazy. And uh, that's one of my great memories of UD is that, that night. So it's interesting, all the classes I took and all the things, my number one memory is about the basketball game. We might have to edit that out. I don't want the other faculty to hear you say that. Yeah. <laughs> um, what most of the alumni associate with a, a specific house, and, and I, I know some some of the houses have have been have been torn down or relocated. Uh, is, is there a house when you come back to campus? Is there a street or a house that you go back to and sort of relive some of your glory days? You know, there there are. Uh, yeah, I remember all the houses. Four, I was there four years. Freshman year, uh, I lived in a dorm called University Hall which was on the West Campus. I don't, the, the building still exists today. It is now a rehab center. But at the time, uh, the university had an overflow, had excess students, and uh, housed about 300, 400 male students as freshmen out of this dorm. The dorm was an old tuberculosis hospital from the 20s. Uh, turns out my uncle uh, actually died from tuberculosis in, the hosp- in that building. Oh, wow. Um, so it was a weird feeling. We lived out there. We took a bus about 30 minutes to campus uh, every day. Buses ran every 15 or 20 minutes. Probably if most of us had known that was going to be our housing, would have chosen another university. Uh, but we showed up and all of a sudden we're on this, in this building and here we are. And um, so what, what, what's memorable about it is my four best friends from UD are, were, were roommates or were, were, were dorm mates uh, back freshman year. And we still get together once or twice a year and relive uh, the glory days of when we were in college. And so the, the, that, in a good and bad way, University Hall is, is a, a strong memory. I lived sophomore year on Frank Street. Uh, wasn't our best house. We were in a neighborhood. The neighbors didn't really like student noise. And so it was a, a little different environment, but it's where, where we were. And they call that the, the fairgrounds neighborhood now over at Frank Street. Yes, must, must be. I, I have driven by the house. It's clearly upgraded. It's, uh, uh, but at the time, it was a little bit out on the periphery of the university. Yeah. And then junior and senior year lived on Evanston Street near the athletic fields. And then senior year had a great house on Alberta across from the field house. Um, the house is actually still there. It's the last house before you get to the big parking lot. There used to be two more houses. 
Um, but uh, we lived there. And, you know, we would sit on the porch uh, on a Friday afternoon and drink beer and say hello to everybody who was walking, walking through through the campus. And it was a terrific experience. So I, I one of the great things that Dayton has going for it is the camaraderie that occurs by the students all living uh, in, in, in the housing, in the neighborhoods. It's really a, a terrific asset for the university. Absolutely. And I, I love hearing the stories of alums that are still connected with, with their roommates and other friends from, from their time at UD. How, how do you all still, still get together? Is there a set weekend or a set place that you all go? No, uh, uh, usually one of us organizes some event. We started this about 20 years ago and uh, it, it, it was going to be every two years we would get together and do something. We would go to Las Vegas or we would come out to California. Uh, we've out now taken three or four uh, uh, cruises on, on ships and have started in the last 10 years taking our wives with us. And the wives were a little nervous about spending seven days on vacation with people they didn't know. But it's actually worked out well. The wives now get together and talk. And, uh, you know, we we stay up late at night reliving the glory days. And, and the wives now go to bed because they're tired of hearing about the canoe story. Uh, but uh, it's, you know, we, we, we just uh, found that getting together, you know, is really important. It really brings a lot of great memories back. And, and you know, it's something that, um, we, we would regret if we didn't do. So it's, I, it, I'm really glad that my, the, the four of us or five of us who were good friends going back to 1971 are still very well connected. It's really been in the last five or 10, 10 years that we've really focused on meeting once or twice a year somewhere. That's fantastic. You know, as you think back, I, I know you've already said your, your most memorable moment was was the the basketball game. But are, are there any courses or, or professors that that you remember that, that had an impact on your life? No, I was an accounting major uh, and I was relatively good at accounting. And so I, I, re, uh, I my, my, my most interesting memory or vivid memory is a guy named Colonel Ellis. I don't know how long ago he left UD. Uh, but he was a cost accounting professor and he was this gruff old guy, old guy, he was probably 45 years old, but he seemed, my, my memory of him was he was like 80. Uh, but he always had a cigar, unlit cigar, he chewed on and he was really gruff. And, and but but I, I, I really enjoyed his classes. And I, I, I think that the accounting courses I took um, really helped me in business and are really something that every entrepreneur, every everybody who wants to be an entrepreneur or any form of business should take accounting classes. If you don't understand the numbers, you're eventually going to find yourself in some trouble. Yeah, I, I think the the accounting faculty would be very happy to to hear you say that. They they call it the the language of business, um, but uh, you know I, I think our other faculty you know think their their disciplines are are important as well. But I'm I'm glad to hear that you know that some of the knowledge from your your academic work was was valuable in your in your business career. What uh, if you had one meal on or near campus? Where would you eat? Oh, there's no question. Milano's. At the time, Milano's was a little storefront. There were no chairs. Uh, it was a it was a little pizzeria, and we'd get a provolone sub. And, uh, <laughs> and 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 especially late at night, it seemed like so we'd spend we'd spend the evening in Timothy's having a beer, and then we'd go to Milano's for a sub. I like how you describe that. Timothy's having a beer. I'm sure that's yes. exactly what you did. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm going to have to chart, start charging Milano's uh, for for marketing because uh, 
the vast majority of the alumni that I have on this podcast, when I ask that question, uh, the answer is is Milano's. And and when alumni, you know, come back and and I go have have lunch or a meal with alumni, and if I offer them, hey, where where would you like to meet for lunch? It's always Milano. So I love Milano's. I think it's a great place, but uh, I, I've eaten there a little bit too much in the last couple of months. The one place we never went to uh, was the Pine is it the Pine Club, the Pine Club, the Steakhouse, the Pine Club. And I've been there a number of times since I graduated because I now can afford it. But I remember but it was it was I don't think it's changed, although I don't think I was ever inside the Pine Club while I was at UD. But the outside doesn't seem to have changed much. It, it looks the same inside and outside, probably. I don't know because I wasn't here in 1975, but uh, the, the interior definitely does not look at it like it has been uh, touched in, in quite a while. I've been here 15 years, and it certainly hasn't changed in, in those 15 years. But it's, uh, I see students there. I don't eat there a ton, but I'll, I'll eat there a couple times a year, and, and I'll usually see a student or two in there. But they're almost Probably always with there. their parents. We, exactly. They're <laughs> always there with their parents. You, you never see a group of students there by themselves. It's, it's a little too expensive. Yeah. Um, well, well, Bob, I, I really appreciate you taking time today. Are, is, are there any questions you have for me or anything else you think would be relevant to share with, with our alumni, with our, with our faculty, with our current students? Well, I, I, I do have one other thought and something that I found interesting in, in, in keeping me focused and, and being successful is, I tended to try and set priorities for my life and then try and make decisions, both personal and business, that, that conform with those priorities. And I'll give you mine. And everybody needs to, should set their own. And they're, and they're different at different times in your life. Uh, but they're, uh, in my mind, it, it really helps me make decisions that ultimately make me happy. So there's six, there's six priorities. One is to maximize flexibility in my schedule. I want to do what I want to do. I don't want somebody telling me where to go. Second, I want to minimize voluntary grief. Don't do stuff you don't really want to do. For example, uh, we were just scheduled to go down for a political event down in San Diego for a weekend. And my wife and I really didn't want to go, but, you know, we signed up for it. And then last night we said, why are we doing this? This is voluntary grief. We don't need to go to this. So we canceled. So the priorities actually paid off last night. So minimize voluntary grief. Maintain income and net worth. I did these priorities after I'd had some business success. So I decided it's okay having some money, but I wasn't focused on being the richest guy in America because there are trade-offs. Um, next was to help my executives in the company achieve their financial goals because they helped me be successful. I want to reciprocate and help them. Uh, fifth was to create an environment so my sons could join me in business someday. They've now done that. So I, both my sons work in our family real estate company. And six was to give back to the community with time and money, uh, because we should all recognize that we've been very fortunate in our, in our lives and, and giving back to others who are less fortunate is really helpful. And then I put a little note at the end. Finally, always make time for family and friends. I, I love that. Those are great, great priorities. When did you sit down and, and decide to, to have those and, and live by those? You know, I did it about 2006 first, and then I, I changed them a little bit in 2011, and and they're pretty much uh, consistent through today. So it took, you know, it took me years of experience and doing things and making mistakes and not living by priorities. But uh, and I describe it as living intentionally. I, I find it too often people say they're too busy. You're not ever too busy. You just have something else you'd rather do. Somebody asked me, "Would you like to play golf?" What do people say? I don't, I don't have time. No, what you really mean is you've got something else you'd rather do. 
So why don't you just admit that? But when you do admit it, then quite often you go, well, I actually don't want to do that other thing. So do the thing you want to do. I think the voluntary grief piece is something that way more people should think about, I, I, myself included. Uh, I'm, I'm immediately thinking about somebody asked me to play golf earlier this week and I said, I don't have time. And you're right. <laughs> I, <laughs> I do have time, but I'm stuck doing something else that I promised I would do that I don't really want to. <laughs> and if you can minimize that grief, life's more fun. Absolutely. Or at least you're living what you want to do, right? And you, you're kind of honest with yourself as to what you're doing. And But over time, you change your behavior because you realize I don't have to do those. Some of the things you wind up doing, you don't actually have to do. You do them because you've always done it or it's just easy or, or you, you just think somebody else wants it. Think how often you've had people schedule a meeting and it's at five o'clock and you're, your son's got a little league game and you're going to miss your little league game. Tell the guy, how about we meet the next morning at eight? You'd be amazed how often the person will go, yeah, that's, that's okay too. So, you know, setting your priorities and then living life the way you want to uh, kind of works out better than you think. Well, I'll tell you, I, I met with Eric Spina, our president, probably the week before I, I stepped into this role as, as interim dean. And, and I asked him, how does, how does he balance, you know, how do, how do you handle the, the work-life balance? I've, I've got three young kids. I've got an eight-year-old and, and twin five-year-olds. And he had young kids when, when he sort of stepped into these leadership roles at, at Syracuse. And he said, you've got you've to decide which things you can't miss and don't ever miss them, regardless of what happens at work. If you've said, you know, I'm going to show up for every birthday, don't ever miss one. And he, and he gave the story of Halloween was really important in his family. And he missed Halloween one year for a, for a work event. And he says his wife still gives him grief, grief about it. And, and he regrets, he regrets missing that. So for, for me, I pretty much shut off work not every day, but as much as I can from five to nine and, and go home, either pick up my kids from, from daycare or, or meet my wife at home and have dinner and hang out as a family and then put them to bed. And then I'll often go, go back to work, but I, but I'll, I won't take, I won't take the meetings at five o'clock, like, like you described. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's, that's worked pretty well. Obviously there's, <laughs> there's challenges, um, but I voluntary grief. I've got to work more on that one. You know, the thing is, you can't minimize involuntary grief. Involuntary grief just happens. People get sick, <laughs> they get accidents, you, but you can't manage the, the voluntary stuff. Uh, and I, I also, I just like to compliment you and the university on the, the way you've built the business school. I, I think the, uh, the investment center, the flyer enterprises are really terrific ways for students to uh, get a practical education along with the the academic education and you, you, you need them both and, and uh, I, I really like what Fly, Flyer Enterprises is doing I, I think it's a terrific program. I think both of those are my, my predecessor John Middlestadt used to call those consequential learning so it's, it's experiential learning with consequences which allows them to take some of those risks that you talked about and, and they're taking them with real money so mm -hmm. if, if it doesn't work right those students feel way more guilty than if, if it was a simulated portfolio that they were managing and you lose fake money, who cares? But this is university's endowment money that they're losing or, or other current use funds that they might lose starting a, starting a business with Flyer Enterprises that, that doesn't work. Uh, so I, I think that, that kind of learning on, on, on in college when, yes, there's real consequences, but the stakes are pretty low for the students. It's, if, if, the business doesn't work while they're here. It's not going to impact their career when they get out of here. 
So it's low stakes, but it's still a, it's still a risk and it still has meaning and value to the students. Mm-hmm. Well, Bob, I, I really want to thank you for taking time to chat with me today. Uh, I imagine this interview was very intriguing for fellow flyers, especially to hear about your experience uh, as an ambassador and, and certainly for our students and, and our young alumni to listen to your, your stories about being an entrepreneur and, and your advice for not only being successful in business, but I think being successful in life. And I'm pretty sure we're going to we're going to call this this episode voluntary avoid voluntary grief. Uh, for me, that's that's the the best piece I got out of there. So no, no, uh, you don't avoid it. You minimize voluntary grief. You're okay. always going to have some of it. <laughs> minimize it, minimize it. So yeah. so thanks again. Uh, I hope to uh, hope to see you on campus soon, and I hope you continue to engage with us in, in the school of business and help our help our students. Great, um, thanks, Trevor. Thanks for having me this morning. Take care. Bye. Thanks to our listeners, and we'll see you again next time on the Business Class Podcast. Go Flyers. Thanks for joining us for the Business Class Podcast. If you'd like to engage with us further, please follow us on social media. Our Instagram and Facebook accounts all use the name SBA. You can also email the Dean's Office with questions or suggestions for future podcasts at sbadean at udayton.edu. No matter where you are on your career path, we are proud that you're part of our Dayton Flyer family.